Hello and welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. I'm your host, Peggy Hughes. And if you're joining us for the first time, a very warm welcome. If you're joining us for the fifth time, a very warm welcome. It's absolutely lovely to be joining you wherever you are in the world with this podcast. We've got two very special guests on today's episode. They are Stephen Rutt, the nature writer and author of The Seafarers, and Roseanne Watt, the author of the poetry collection Moder Die, and one of the judges on this year's Wigtown Poetry Prize. The Wigtown Poetry Prize is one of the UK's best established writing competitions and a launchpad for the careers of many exceptional and exciting writers. It welcomes entries from poets writing in English, wherever they may be. Separate categories also celebrate the best of Scottish Gaelic and Scots language poetry, and a special category acknowledges a rising talent in Dumfries and Galloway. There's also a pamphlet prize named in memory of Alistair Reid, local poet and one of Scotland's foremost literary figures. So if you're a poet and fancy entering that, I'll remind you that the deadline is the 29th of May and you can live wherever you like. And we thought it would be a really special opportunity this on this week's podcast to have a chat to one of the judges and just see what kind of things she's looking for. Roseanne Watt is herself, of course, a very fine poet. She was shortlisted for the Saltire Society Poetry Book of the Year in 2019, joint winner of the Highland Book Prize in 2019, and winner of the Edwin Morgan Poetry Award. Uh, her collection, Mother Die, uh, was published just around this time last year in 2019, and it's a really stunning collection of poetry about her home in Shetland, among many other things. So Rosanne, it's really nice to chat to you today. Thanks for joining us. We wanted to get a bit closer to the process of the the Wigtown Poetry Prize, for which this year, of course, you are a judge. What are you expecting? My mind is open to anything. I edit the Island Review and I've just finished doing the best Scottish poems. And the thing that I found, there's sometimes there's poems that just leap out at you and you love them immediately. And then there's sometimes ones that just kind of take seed. They come to kind of make a garden of your mind. And I love just being surprised by poems in that way as well. So I think that what I look for in poetry is a really good image. If there's like a line or an image that really sparks in my mind, then that's, you're onto a winner there. <laughs> so interesting with poetry, isn't it? Because it's it's not always easy to explain what it is that makes no, a poem great. Kind of, to use an overused word, ineffable, but I like to keep my mind open as well with the, the process because I know that it's difficult to get out of your own biases, but I do want to stay very open to all kinds of poems so but in terms of that initial post bag how will you go about that then because I, I know that in the past the, the competition it does it receives a lot of old entries there so what will your your initial plan be well i have all the time in the world now <laughs> to be uh, reading poems and i'm really looking forward to it because i am not doing as many gigs as i thought i was going to be doing this year and i'm finding that it's really difficult to read prose at the moment and just like my focus has completely been shattered by this entire situation but poetry is something that I find really easy to read at the moment and a big relief as well like I can get uh, engagement with literature through poetry so it's I'm really looking forward to it and the process will be just sitting down with a cup of tea and reading and as I said before I kind of had that uh, this like ones which will leap out ones which might take seed and I tend to sort 
via that kind of route. Mm, yeah, gut. I think it was the, the poet Douglas Dunn who said a poem had to operate on three levels for him. It had to kind of do something to his head, his heart and his gut. Yes, um, absolutely. Someone um, said to me last week that there was something about a poem that gave an, a sort of organising space. What do you think is for you and why do you think we're, and I think a lot of us are, kind of reading more poetry at the moment? I read a really wonderful article by Mary Jean Chan recently in The Guardian and she spoke about poetry's ability to contain nuance and it has a propensity towards truth which I really loved as an idea because that's what I feel like I want from poetry at the moment is to kind of cut through all of the noise of the world and get to what's essential about our experiences. I, that's what I've been finding is it kind of taps into a collective sense of that. It's a sort of universality that comes through the best poems that sort mm-hmm. of speak to beyond this moment that we're in that's very difficult. I wonder what it was like then, just if you would say a wee bit about the best Scottish poems, because that was the selection from 2019. What a gift to spend a year in poetry, as it were. But what was it like to read last year's When the Year We're In is So Funny? Yes. <laughs> you know? um, yeah, I was very worried about that aspect of it because I made my decisions. I got the poetry for Best Scottish Poems at the end of last year, and I was reading through December and January, and I made my decisions in February. Then all of this happened, and I was worried that the poems I had chosen maybe were going to seem dated in some way, in the way things had so changed so remarkably. But when I was revisiting them to write my commentaries, I found that they were just speaking as essentially as ever to things that we need to hear right now. And it's that sense of compassion and trying to capture something in the collective experience that still sustains poetry, I think, even during times which are as extraordinary as these. And it was quite comforting to turn to that and know that despite everything being so up in the air, there's still a foundation that I can return to in this form of literature that I love so much. That's the thing with poems, they can be sort of a way marker for a moment that's happened, but it's also just depending on when you meet them, they take on a whole different sort of meaning, don't they? And that's what I love about poetry is that kind of room for interpretation. I love hearing about the reader's responses to my own work because they bring other dimensions that I might not have seen in the poetry, but which is still very true to that poem. And I, I just love that about poetry's ability to contain those kind of numerous truths at once. And so speaking, we sort of segued quite beautifully and naturally into speaking about your work, which I very much wanted to do, um, to ask you a little bit then about, and I really hope I'm going to pronounce this correctly, Roseanne, maybe you'll <laughs> help if I don't, but Moderdai. Moderdai, yeah. Um, yeah. Just to, to speak about it, because it, it of course won the um, the Edwin Morgan Poetry Prize, and your poetry really um, concerns itself with home and place. So could you say a little bit for us about how Shetland is in the work and in, in your aspirations for the work, I guess? Well, the first thing thing is that it's very much about language and the poems are written between English and the dialect of Shetland, uh, which is Shetland. I have this kind of strange relationship with that dialect because I spoke it and understood it when I was very young and then it was almost like as soon as I became aware of the dialect existing not as uh, a whole language, it was like it became differentiated to English before I had 
this kind of idea that English and Shetland were just one and the same. And then they bifurcated when I became old enough to know that wasn't true. And I tended to just speak English during my childhood. The the modern die is a a wave which the old Shetland fishermen used to use. It's like an undercurrent in the sea, which is said to always travel in the direction of home. These experienced fishermen could use it in order to navigate their way back home if other navigation methods failed. So it was usually during like foggy weather or stormy weather. I thought this was a really nice way to kind of capture that returning to home. For me, returning to the dialect after many years of feeling like I couldn't go back to it was a lovely way to capture that idea. The, the words themselves, I've just found such a rich vein of expression for this island that I love so much. And it's just been really incredible mm-hmm. thing to return to the dialect. And it does feel like returning home. It's a beautiful collection and it's just so rich and a pleasure to read. I mean, I wonder, could you say that just a little bit more about some of the words that you've come across? Are there any other favourites in there for you? Oh, yes, there's so many. Um, Some wonderful words from the half language, which is the thing about Shetland dialect is that it's based on an old dead language called Norn, a Norse language. The fishermen would use a a language called the half language when they were at sea because they believed that to use words from the new language would anger the old gods of the sea. So Mm. it was deeply unlucky to use these land words. So they used the old language when they were at sea and one of them is called lom and that means the surface of the sea growing light and silver because there are fish underneath the surface. And then another word just from Shetland is... Bonhoga, and that means a spiritual or a childhood place. Bon comes from barn, which is bairn, and hoga is like a, a, a pasture. So it literally, its literal etymology is the pasture of the child. Lovely, lovely. Um, you might have been able to hear some dogs just joining oh, in with you there outside oh, of the window. I'm very jealous of anybody who gets oh. to, gets to quarantine with dogs at the moment. Oh. <laughs> Rosanna, as we sort of come to an end, and we're going to have one of your poems, I hope, to finish yes. us off. You're just such a multi-instrumentalist, if you like, you know, filmmaking, and you've just completed the PhD and the, the sort of editing work and so on. Could you say a little bit about how, what role the, the filmmaking and the music making, how they oh. feed the poetry, if at all, or what, what that creative life is like? I absolutely loved filmmaking when I was young, um, when I was growing up, and I just began to kind of meld the two when I became older. So uh, poetry and film kind of just blended into each other. And I feel like the process is very similar in terms of pacing for a film. Editing is a lot like deciding the length of lines and the kind of breathing space of the image really reflects poetry in many ways. The thing I like about film poetry is that because it's so image-based, if you decide to go down the route of having text and image working together on the screen, it kind of frees you up a bit to experiment more with other elements of poetry that's less reliant on image because it's already there. You don't want to be making like a script 
effect. We want to actually start using the words. As, I, I like to say uh, that the words become like cracks on the screen and they're getting through to the, the resonances below the image. So that's how I bring them together anyway. Mm. I often think of film poetry as being kind of like a translation somehow of the, mm-hmm. um, of, of the, the work. It. Um, and what about the music? Maybe a silly question because music and poetry are often hand in hand. Oh, but, very much. Um, yeah, I think I I haven't been doing as much music as I would like to be doing now. I feel like singing and poetry are very very similar, um, especially when it comes to performing. And I think that the having a background in singing was really a big boost in order to perform poetry because you do find the uh, the kind of beats of the lines and the rhythms of the verse a lot easier I think having expressed things in music before so are gigs a, a way of you honing the poetry as it were in terms of hearing it aloud and seeing how it lands in a room yes absolutely um, and I just think that it's the it's the final dimension to the verses is to have it spoken and to have it engaged with in front of a live audience. It's been a, a quite a journey for me because I used to think I hated performing and just doing it lots and lots, you start to like it and you start to enjoy it and find it as an opportunity to, as you say, hone it and just like get calmer on the stage and bring people into the performance of it. And I really do miss that now. I, I, have, I will be doing some live events, but it is different chatting to a, a computer screen and Mm, different being in the room Mm. and and feeling the trying to connect with the audience is one of those things that you just can't really do (laughs) digitally it's a it's a funny slight dissonance that you and I are having a chat and then other people will be listening in hopefully at some yes. point but, um, but it is it's a it's a different way of being really well I've just got one final little sneaky question if I may of course um which is um who would you say or which who's maybe more than one <laughs> um would be the poet laureate of your inner life oh okay I'm gonna have to say two because that's allowed <laughs> one of them is a Shetland poet called uh, Robert Allen Jimison. I adore his poetry collection, North Atlantic Drift, um, and the way he uses language, the Shetland language, and the way he writes it as well in this amazing orthography, which looks so much like a, a, a different language on the page. But when you read it aloud, it, it's just the Shetland voice completely represented. And then I think it would have to be Alice Oswald as my second mm. Wonderful. Yeah, both wonderful. But we'll hear a wee poem. Okay, I will read a Shetland poem and I'll do a little translation at the end in case Fogg would like to kind of what's being said. This is Rengus. Rengus is a red-throated diver um, and there's some weather lore associated with it, like depending on the sound of its call and the direction of its flight, it was said that it would predict whether there was going to be a storm or dry weather. So Rengus. Do surely done Shirland, I suppose a rees of these duntum days. We named it once to loaf for that sclent urgent sang that first driven thy throat. Never leaped. There's wader heads of the ist. Sang or silence. Der gathering. Rengus. You're surely exhausted, singing your prophecies of storms in these downpour days, with none who want to listen for that long tear of urgent song which first ripped open your throat. 
never heed. Columns of cloud are rising in the east. Song or silence, they gather. Thank you so much to Roseanne for that absolutely stunning poem that she read to us from her home in Edinburgh. I'm sure I don't need to convince you further about what a beautiful collection Modo Dai is, and that's available from all good independent bookshops. Next we chat to Stephen Rutt. Stephen is a writer and an amateur naturalist specialising in creative non-fiction prose and birds or beaky blinders, as I saw them called somewhere in an interview with Stephen. Um, he won a Roger Deakin Award and a Saltire First Book Award for his debut, This Seafarers. So Stephen, a pleasure to get to chat to you today. I just wanted to kick off really with um, something you said in the opening section of uh, Seafarers, which was really about stories sometimes having long roots. And that got me thinking about the the roots of this story and you. And I wondered if you could, yeah, just give us a sense of, of what those roots are. Yeah, so I started birdwatching half my life ago this spring. It was the 1st of May 2006. I was a 14-year-old boy and I really wanted to go for a walk. And I think my dad, with some degree of sort of foresight and planning, took me to Minsmere, which is an RSPB reserve on the Suffolk coast. I had an amazing afternoon there, seeing all the sort of charismatic birds that you find at that reserve, booming bitterns and marsh harriers displaying overhead and avocets, that elegant white and black wader, siphing through the water with their upturned bills. But it wasn't until the way back, just as we were about to leave the reserve, that we saw a Chetty's warbler, which is small, brown and pretty boring to look at, but they're also really shy and really hard to see. This bird, this Chetty's warbler, jumped up into a, a fairly bare bush uh, where the leaves couldn't hide it and started singing away and they have a really loud ear-splitting song as well. And my dad, who, like me, is a fairly unexcitable person, dissolved in excitement. I've still to this day not seen him as excited as he was to see his first Chetty's Warbler. That enthusiasm sunk deep into me and I got really excited as well. Even now, half my life later, I'm still being inordinately enthusiastic about small, brown, um, incredibly boring-looking birds. What is it about the Chetty's Warbler? Is it is it just because it's quite a, one of those ones that, that birders kind of list? Like, I've seen a Chetty's Warbler. Is it just a rare, is it a rare one? They, they colonised in the 1960s, so they're, they're, they're relatively recent development in this country, and they're still only sort of found in the Midlands and the South. But yeah, it, it, it is a birder's bird. If you didn't know what you were looking at, it would be quite easy to just pass it off as a poorly seen wren or a robin or something like that but they have a really charismatic song they shout just we chetty just we chetty really rather loudly so the fact that they're so shy and difficult to see means that you know when you uh, I, I was told when i was 14 that seeing them is really exciting and even to stay yeah i still get excited by them wonderful and you go on to say then that you know this that was your awakening to the world outside and, and from that moment you were kind of guided by birds i wonder if you could take us back to that teenage self obsessed with birds and also with books one of the best ways into birding that I had was that my dad had this massive collection of birdwatching magazines, Birdwatch, British Birds, Birdwatching, and they were an incredible tool for just getting lost. And I, you know, I'd come home from school, dig one out of the pile and just spend the entire evening reading it and trying to absorb all that was in it because it was this whole new world to learn. And that was the world around me. I've always been capable of a certain degree of fanaticism. You know, it was football when I was seven. Manchester United winning the treble in 1999 was a glorious moment for me. I was a mad keen fisherman for a couple of years. But the difference was these interests that I had back then, they were quite insular. You know, football was just the thing for 90 minutes. Fishing was, well, I was always 
so inferior to my brother it wasn't even worth bothering with. But birdwatching, you see so many different places, you see the environments around you, and it's a sort of way of seeing how it works as well. It was like seeing the workings of the world, and it still is. I'm still regularly amazed. Growing up in East Anglia as well was a massive help. I fell in love with the flatlands, these open, empty marshlands where it's all a sort of uneasy hybrid of water and mud and land and where there's more birds than people. I, I was always quite a shy, bit of an intense introvert as a teenager as well. So being able to be out in these spaces where there wasn't people, I found that really um, peaceful. And mm. birding today still gives me a, a, a great sense of peace as well. Yeah, you say in the book that nature is is good for the shy. It's it's a good place to to, to sort of hide. And so in in the book, then you you speak of how life, you know, after university and so on, and London calls, and then it doesn't, and and you go into that in the book, and you and you find yourself leaving London and heading to Orkney. So I, I was twenty two. I was single. And I was coming to the end of my tenancy, and I had enough savings from my job, which was sort of slowly destroying me as a person becoming just very afraid of everything, which for a shy introvert to head down that path, it's very hard to pull yourself back. So because I was 22, uh, single and coming to the end of my tenancy, I quit my job. And then I thought I should actually find something to do. Um, and then I saw this advert online for North Ronaldsey Bird Observatory who were looking for volunteers to spend the season there. So I fired off my CV and they said, yes, come for two months. I was amazed. I was thrilled. I was delighted because North Ronaldsey is one of the best places uh, in Britain for seeing migrant birds, which is something I'm really into. It was such an incredible experience. I turned up in early March, the only volunteer to get to the island that early. It was like I'd been released. I was suddenly seeing everything with some sort of great deal of significance. You know, I saw the northern lights. I saw meteor showers. I saw you know, hen harriers flying really close. Things that just seemed bigger and more intense than and anything I'd experienced in London. I, I became myself again. My anxieties just melted away. And this isn't the case for everyone. I just felt like I'd found a place that was right for me. It's like the, the Andrew Gregg poem, Orkney, This Life, where he says that I want to live close to where the heart gives out. Well, I found that Orkney was also where my heart gave out. What a lovely line that actually genuinely gave me. You know, and sometimes poems just do a little funny thing at the back of your head. That, that line, wow. Yeah, um, every, time, every time I read that poem, it kicks me right in the, right in the emotional bit. You, you sort of started to touch on that kind of the, the sense of, of sensory overload that being somewhere like that is. It's something that the book does really beautifully as well. A, a review of it said that you could, they could taste the salt which was so lovely I mean could you just paint a bit more of that picture for us just the yeah the noise I was supposed to be there for two months I ended up staying there for seven months but because it was such a wet awful spring everything was sort of delayed and fractured a little bit so the black guillemots it's a close relative of the puffin it's a small all black orc with a little white oval on its wings um, and they nest in the rocks on the coastline and they would be out to sea and then they would disappear and it's because they were all now hiding in the rocks um, and then you'd see white splashes of guano appearing at those rocks and then you'd see ones flying into the rocks with you know bouquets of big red fish it was the first seabird that I was able to work with. So we were, what we were doing was we were ringing them, mm -hmm. which is where you put a small metal band on its leg. It has an individual code on it so that you can track that bird is found again where it was first ringed. So it's a great way to work out the, how old something is and where it's moved to and from. So I was getting down on the rocks and scrabbling about under these boulders trying to pick out these uh, chicks to gently attach these rings to. And I found that really powerful uh, and a humbling thing to you know, be the first human this chick had ever seen. Mm -hmm. The chick didn't find it humbling and powerful. The chick was trying to <laughs> bite my wrist at one end and very muddy, very exhausting hands-on work. But it turned out that's what I needed. But it wasn't until the uh, Arctic Terns 
they'd had a horrible spring. They flooded out of the first field they tried to nest in, and then a feral cat laid waste to another colony, and we found a big stash of, sort of broken bits of Arctic tern, which was pretty harrowing. But quite late in the season, there was a flock of about 4,000, and they all took up onto the uh, the rocks at the lighthouse at the top end of the island. Uh, and they have this most amazing screechy call. Uh, it's more like, it sort of sounds like it going, ka ka ka. but it's much more elegant than that. They're a very highly strung species, so... If you were to step too close, that would be 4,000 Arctic terns would immediately rise in the big white wave and well, they'd come and attack you. They're very good at connecting their bill to the top of your head. I always wore a hat, but it still felt like a pinprick. And bizarrely, it was this species that was trying to attack me that I really was sort of wowed by. Arctic terns, they breed um, Orkney and all the way north to uh, Greenland, about as far north as land gets. And obviously they spend the winter in the Weddell Sea in the Antarctic, which is the most incredible mind-blowing migration. But then I realised as I was leaving that it was actually the fulmars that I really, really loved. They're like the size of a gull, but about the same sort of plumage as a gull, so it's really easy to overlook them. But they're actually a petrel, which means they're closely related to the albatrosses. So they have this most amazing capability of flight. You know, they, they can fly in a 50 mile, in a 50 mile an hour gale like it's not a problem and have this incredible way of flying but where they soar up and then low and go between the waves and they spiral back up and go down and it's 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 like it's like it's riding its own roller coaster you'll see it doing this in whether you can barely stand up in and they have a really slow breeding season so they were just beginning to pair up when i arrived at the island in march and the young were just leaving when i left in september so i sort of spent the entirety of the breeding season watching these birds go about their daily life their daily business why then do you think that it strikes me anyway that a lot of seabirds are not maligned or maybe i'm just saying that because of seagulls in city centers and all that that kind of means would you think we're getting it wrong i certainly think we get gulls wrong they're only in our cities because we've sort of we took all the fish out of the sea and present, presented them with these amazing I mean, a, a rooftop is basically a, a flat-topped cliff to them, and a bag of chips is as good as a fish. I think we don't understand why they're there, and it sort of pains me to see the hate they get. Last summer, we I, I found a um, baby lesser blackback gull that had fallen out of its nest and was sort of um, hiding under a car in a cul-de-sac with cats prowling around it. So I had to sort of look after it for a bit until the SSPCA came to pick it up. And um, yeah, once you've had a baby gull in your shower for two hours, it, it sort of makes you love them. They're as great and charismatic as, as any of our wilder seabirds as well. Um, it's just a shame that I think we generally a little bit scared of nature. And I think we just need to understand it and understanding it will help people love it, which mm. is what I think ultimately we need to do because we're living through an ecological crisis at the moment. In terms of being an, a nature writer at this moment, you know, of crisis that you mentioned, what, what is that a different responsibility or a different obligation on you, do you feel, as a writer? Or I feel an obligation to the truth. That is, I have to be, I think, responsible with my language. So obviously I've got to put feeling into it, but I've got to put, like, responsible feeling into it. I can't, I can't say, oh, the bad girl nicked the baby buffet I've got to say it was just going about the food cycle and you know that happens but that gull has young of its own to feed I have an obligation to the species to represent them fairly having left Orkney I came back to writing I throughout my life I've given up and taken up writing again um, I was sort of got too exasperated by my badness and then realised, no, actually, I can do it. I began to sort of miss seabirds so much. So I had to return to Shetland, Orkney, 
the Northumberland coast, which is an amazing place for seabirds, the Farne Islands and places like that, which you always see on Spring Watch. But also Skomer Island in Wales, because part of the story was tracking down an ornithologist called Ronald Lockley, who set up Britain's first bird observatory. The journey took me all, all the way around the British Isles to get a, an idea of how they, they change across the country. Uh, a puffin in Sumberhead is very different to a puffin on Farne Island. I did want to ask you about this beautiful project that you've been working on with the Wigtown Book Festival, the Salt Marsh Library. So it's entirely dependent on actually being able to get outside and go to Wigtown Bay. But the main thrust of it is that I'm going to produce this extended piece of writing uh, looking at the stories that we can find in the salt marsh. Um, I always have this great belief of the, the environment and places as a great repository of stories and cultures and things that have happened much in the same way that a library is a repository of culture as well. Um, salt marsh is a really interesting thing because I'm sure, have you seen the, the picture of the Solway that NASA took? I, I have seen that. Yeah, it's really a, a, astonishing picture, isn't it? Yeah. And I love the way that you see the, the, the flowing lines of all the mud and the sediment coming down the surf. Salt marsh is an interruption to that flow. It forms when sediment builds up and then becomes colonised by glass, water and sandfire and then that fixes the soil in its place and then other plants grow and then periodically it's sort of covered in salt water again and then it's revealed again. Stems back to my uh, original teenage birding in East Anglia. I just find marshes most sort of hypnotic, incredible places. They change on a daily basis, depending on what time you're there, what season you're there, if it's a spring tide, if it's a high tide, low tide. The tides are dependent on the moon as well. So I have a, a strong and surprising space theme, I think, um, I'm going to start with. Um, yeah. I'd also love to um, get stories from um, local people or people um, who spent a lot of time at Wigtown, people who have connections to the Salt Marsh. I think later in this year, I'm going to ask people to send me their stories that I could hopefully weave into the narrative as well. What a beautiful project. So is that going to be, um, is that a non-fiction piece that you think it will become or, or maybe a foray into fiction or what, what do you think will come out the other side? It's going to be a piece of creative non-fiction. Um, it's going to be much fewer birds in it than in the previous books that I've done, which have been very bird heavy. So I'm looking forward to this sort of chance to explore habitat and a landscape and a place and hopefully some history and people's history as well. It's, um, it's Britain's largest local nature reserve and I love mm. that juxtaposition of being Britain's largest local something. Thank you so much to Stephen for joining us. We can't wait to see what comes out of the Saltmarsh Library project. Um, Stephen will also be on Wigtown Wednesdays on Wednesday the 10th of June um, and recommend highly both his books, The Seafarers and Wintering, both beautiful lockdown reads about birds and paying attention and slowing down. Thank you to Roseanne Watt. And if you're uh, entering or have entered the Wigtown Poetry Prize this year, we wish you the very best of luck and hope that it's a positive outcome. And we can't wait to see who wins that competition this year. Um, and thank you very much to you for joining us today. And if it's your first time, thank you. And if it's not, thank you as well. And we hope very much that you'll join us again next time. So take care for now and all best. Bye bye. <laughs>